Kevin McClurg has twice circumnavigated the globe by sail, totalling 160,000 nautical miles. He founded, captained and is the current owner of Offshore Odysseys, an ocean-based expedition company based around kite surfing, surfing and paragliding. Gavin is a former US Alpine ski team member and accomplished speed pilot and kayaker with many first ascents in North America and internationally. He currently holds the North American foot launch distance record, a staggering 387 kilometers, set from his hometown of Sun Valley in Idaho to near Helena, Montana. A published writer, Gavin has authored countless magazine articles. He is sponsored by Black Diamond, Smith Optics, Patagonia, GoPro, Niviok, Supair, Saliwa, Pocket Fuel Naturals, Noco, Porcher Sport, Steripen, Patagonia Provisions and Flytech. In summer 2014, Gavin and Will Gadd, himself a flying, climbing and ice climbing legend, set out to complete a 700km traverse of the Canadian Rockies and fly to the US border and into the record books. They did the distance flying, without any hiking. The aim was to make forward progress only when they were in the air. The project was filmed and sponsored by Real Water Productions and Red Bull and will be released as The Rockies Traverse, downloadable from www.redbull.tv. The Canadian Rockies are remote and there are few landing opportunities, which made the flying both exciting and dangerous. Added to that, Will and Gavin had never met before commencing the adventure. As a result of this amazing trip, Gavin and Will were nominated for the prestigious National Geographic Adventure of the Year Award. In this podcast, Gavin gives me the background to the journey and lets me have an insight into the planning and execution of this remarkable adventure. Tell me then, you, did you have the idea about the trip or was it Will's idea? <laughs> That's actually kind of hard to answer. So it was my idea to start with. Uh, we were approached actually by Real Water Productions, their production company uh, out of Squamish, BC, headed by Brian Smith. Uh, he does a lot of stuff with National Geographic. And uh, his partner, a guy named Dave Pearson, they were just floating around the Internet one night and came across 500 miles to nowhere. That was the Bibby trip. Uh, that I did with Nick Grease and Nate Scales and Matt Beechner a little over a year ago. And we did a little short seven and a half minute film called 500 Miles to Nowhere that was really highly produced and shot by a couple of guys who really know what they were doing with red cameras and put a lot of it was it's quite high production value. It came out, we think, really well and, and uh, like it premiered at, at Banff film festival this year anyway these guys just happened to see it online and thought oh my god we've got to do a film about paragliding and so they reached out to nick who's in the film who then reached out to me and said hey these guys are looking for they want to do a big uh bivy like a big paragliding expedition film it for red bull uh they do a lot of stuff these guys do a lot of stuff with with red bull red bull has a series series called the explorers and uh, they were really keen to do something like this. And so we shot them ideas like uh, some just some big lines, Iran, uh, the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. But the one that was really kind of they were keen on and, and we were really keen on was uh, the, the Canadian Rockies. And then a couple months later, we kind of started down that road. A couple months later, um, Nick decided he couldn't do it because his ankle's been quite bad the last couple of years. He had it, he injured it about a year and a half ago. And so Red Bull was 
adamant that it had to be at least two people, you know, that it just makes for better storytelling if there's somebody doing it with you. And basically, I couldn't find anybody that would do it with me. It's a, you know, of course, a really remote line and quite a dangerous line. And but the obvious choice was Will Gadd because it's kind of his backyard. He lives in Canmore, legend pilot, amazing pilot. I wasn't actually really sure if Will was current. You know, of course, he has the North American tow record and, you know, he's won U.S. nationals. And I mean, I had no doubt about his ability, but um, a good, a very good friend of his was was injured pretty badly flying uh, a little over two years ago, I think 2011 um, in Canmore. And, and he'd kind of dropped off the flying radar a little bit after that, after seeing that injury. And so I wasn't really sure, you know, where he was in his flying. And anyway, re- rewind back to the Red Bull thing, you know, for Red Bull to do it, it had to be a quote unquote record. You know, it had to be something longer or farther or bigger than anybody had ever done. And, you know, as you know, and a lot of listeners will know, this last year was a really big year for Volbiv. Paul Guschelbauer and Tom Dorlado were about halfway through their project of the Adriatic at that point. And the, the two French guys had done this big trip across the Rockies all the way down to the Mexican border. You know, but there wasn't really any definition to those. You know, like the French guys were hitchhiking and using bikes and whatever, not taking anything away from them at all, but there ha- there's not really an ethic behind Volbiv. You can kind of approach it however you want to, which is totally cool. But, you know, basically for us to go longer or bigger than what people had done meant, you know, dedicating maybe three or four months to this, to a project like this, where we're starting way up in the Northern Rockies and just going and going and going until we'd beaten everybody else. And uh, when I approached Will with that, he was just completely uninterested. He was just like, you know, listen, man, I'm a pilot. I'm not a backpacker. And and I have no interest in walking across the Rocky Mountains. You know, people have already done that. That's, you know, that's backpacking. That's not Volbiv in his mind. That's not Volbiv. So he said, you know, I'm not interested if we have to go farther than anybody's ever gone because that just means walking. And to me, that's not interesting. You know, that's not an interesting way to see my backyard. I've already walked a ton in my backyard. I don't need to do that anymore. And so <laughs> uh, we kind of had some laughs and I just wasn't as creative as Will is. You know, he's the reason there's a reason he's a, he's a legend and there's a reason he's done so much of these kind of he likes to call them rodeos, you know, these big film projects, because he's really good at figuring things out. And actually, his his uh, comparison, I really liked he and I have both done a ton of whitewater paddling, quite extreme, you know, steep type stuff. And he compares it to like, you know, if you swim a drop or if you portage a drop, you haven't run the river, which is totally the ethic that I live by when it comes to whitewater paddling. And so for him, if, you know, if we were walking certain sections of the route, we hadn't flown it. And, and so he said, listen, I'm super interested. I'll do this project if we have one rule. And that is we can't make forward progress in the air. So therefore this can be a record really easily. Um, we don't have to go that far because not many people have approached it that way. Like this will be the first time that anyone's ever have had a completed track log from, from the start to the finish, you know, so we can walk down, we can walk up, we have to get provisions. We're going to be walking plenty. But if we're going forward, we have to be flying. And so pretty much in the span of five minutes, something that I'd been working on for months and months and months just took this radical change after getting off the phone with Will. That was the first time I'd ever talked to him. It, it went from 
potentially going, you know, a couple thousand kilometers, like all the way down to Jackson Hole or something ridiculous. I'm so glad we didn't do that. Uh, to, to, you know, we'll start in McKenzie down to the U.S. border, which was about, well, about 900 kilometers or so. Uh, so it ended up that, that approach, um, ended up being also really fortuitous because neither one of us realized really how remote this line was. Maybe Will did. I certainly didn't, but it actually wasn't something we could have walked anyway, which sounds absurd. Um, like how can you not just walk, but the BC forest in that part, you know, you're, you're basically flying right down the Alberta, British Columbia border and, it is so thick through there and there's so many like when i say rivers you got to think of like really big rivers like these are massive rivers and there's no bridges and the forest is incredibly dense and could we have walked out of there okay we probably could have figured out a way but it would have been absolutely miserable it's not like oh you know the weather's bad today let's just let's just do like what what they do in the x alps let's just walk 100k in a day uh uh-uh, that wasn't going to happen here you know maybe 10k and it would have been brutal so you know in, in a way we had to fly in and we had to fly out which was kind of cool just remind me how far it was. It was something like 650 kilometers, wasn't it? Yeah, it was actually, you know what, that's been printed everywhere, but it was actually 700. We, we flew a little over 800, wow. but, but straight line from where we started, which was the town of McBride down to the U.S. border was 650 kilometers. But the way we flew was not, of course, a straight line. Like the very first day we actually detoured off the, the, the route we went down was called the Rocky Mountain Trench. That's the, that kind of the name of that area. And we actually detoured off that route and went and flew flew Mount Robson, which is the highest mountain in the Canadian Rockies, just because it was an epic day. It was the, the first day we had there was was the best day of the trip in terms of the weather. We had no wind, really good base, um, just blue skies. It was it was incredible, uh, very rare in the Rocky Mountains. And we were flying down our line and Will was like, we can't not go fly Mount Robson. No one's ever flown there. It's been a dream of mine for 20 years, and this is the day. And so we kind of detoured off our route, went and flew Mount Robson, literally flew right around the top of it. It'd be like flying over the top of Mont Blanc in, in Europe, you know. And then and then we came back out to our route. We actually, you know, landed that night high in this meadow and then carried on the next day. So stuff like that, you know, another another time later on the trip, we got actually blown deeper into the mountains. It was a really windy day. So there was, you know, there were days where, you know, we weren't able to fly, obviously, in a straight line. So um, I'll add it all up. It was a little over 800 kilometers of flying. But if you if you, you just add up like the X contest distance, it was exactly 700 right on the dot, which isn't really like <laughs> it's not actually that big. I mean, that's what that's what's funny about this thing. I mean, it took us 35 days to, to do that. Um, we actually had to leave the project for almost two weeks with just horrendous bad weather in the last couple of weeks of August. So, you know, when you add it up, it was actually 18 days of when we were there to complete it, which is kind of funny considering, you know, basically from the same range, a couple hundred miles south of this area from from where I live in Sun Valley. You know, two years ago, uh, had a flight from here in one day that was 387 kilometers, you know, so, I mean, we, the potential in these mountains in the Rocky Mountains to go big is, is really big. We often have huge flights. So, you know, with good weather, we maybe could have completed that mine in four days. Uh, but 
but it's the Rockies. We don't often get very good weather. So, so in this case, it took us quite a long time, but, uh, you know, we had a lot of days that were, that were, it was a big deal to get 20 K, you know, a, a lot of days where you wouldn't just, you wouldn't wake up and look out the window and go, Oh yeah, this is a flying day. You know, they weren't, they weren't days that you would normally choose to go paragliding, but, but we just, we had to complete this thing. So we, we flew on a lot of really marginal days to, to just try to bang out a little bit of distance. If you'd stuck to your original plan and gone really big, you'd have been dealing with worsening conditions as the the season goes on. I mean, it doesn't really get really bad. It just gets really stable. Um, And so that was we were actually fighting that hard at the end of the trip. It it got so stable we weren't really able to launch until two or three in the afternoon, and then we'd have you know two hours to work. The days there get short really quick, and you know that's why we started. August 1st, because we thought for sure, no doubt, we'll have this done by the 14th. And when you look at historical models, they just don't get the days after that, the big days. You know, you can still go out and have a really lovely flight and have like nice glass off flights in the evenings. And, you know, in the the fall is typically a really nice time to fly here because you, you don't have the winds that you do in the summers. And then, of course, you don't have the cranking thermals either. It, it would think conditions tend to be pretty strong here. So we were really fighting that at the end of the trip. So that was, of course, why we chose north to south. Uh, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But also, you know, as we got further south, you're getting into less stability. But in, in this case, as we went south, it just the, the it just the season turned pretty early on us so it was a real race uh and then we had to we got 40k from the border you know sometime around the 15th or 16th of august and the weather was just it just went totally awful uh you know really bad thunderstorms and heavy rain and and we could see that it was going to be like that for quite some time so we bailed on the project he and i both had other things we had to go do and and we came back to it uh around the first of september and finished it off and i mean just those last 40k was a two-day project that was really tough it was actually some of the hardest flying i've ever done which is crazy i mean it's a 40k usually you do that maybe in an hour or an hour and a half but it was just so stable it was quite hard to stay in the air so definitely i mean as we we could have kept going beyond the the u.s border and still gotten pretty decent conditions for for decent flying that time of year you know like at home here in sun valley which is about 500 miles south of, of where this whole thing took place, um, we often get really good flights well into the middle of October. Again, short, shorter, much shorter flights than we do in the summer, but it can often stay pretty good until, yeah, until about mid-October. But, you know, you can also get snow in August and September when we did actually get snow up there. And the last couple of days we got snowed on at night and it, was, it started getting pretty cold. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what's the sort of typical altitude? I wish I knew the exact height of Robson because that's the highest one in the Canadian Rockies. And I want to say it's just shy of, of 14,000 feet, I think. we I don't think we got over 15,000 feet uh, when we were flying. You know, usually cloud base was, was near the tops of the mountains. So it was, it was typically more like uh, 12 and a half to 14 was were kind of the typical heights we were dealing with. Um, which is a lot lower, uh, interestingly, than what we typically fly around here in Sun Valley. I mean, I'm literally on the same set of mountains that we were flying there. It's just, they all run north-south all the way to Alaska. Here in Sun Valley, when we have good days, we always fly with oxygen because we're we're often getting, you know, up to the legal limit. 
but we weren't dealing with those kind of heights there. And I guess that's pretty normal. Uh, Will was saying it's just, it's more, it's more stable there. And they just, they don't get those often, those really big, uh, cl- high, really high cloud bases like we do here. And I'm not sure the reason for that. I, I imagine it's just, it's just probably density of the air and, and, you know, that it's colder. Is it true that you had never met Will until the day when you met up to actually start this adventure? Yeah, incredibly. Um, you know, it's such a small scene, isn't it, paragliding? You know, you kind of think of that you know everybody. Certainly Will has been, you know, a kind of a legend. As Red Bull calls him, a living legend. You know, he's been somebody I've followed literally for well over a decade, you know, I'm a huge fan of his writing and his blogs. And, you know, I've followed his mountaineering and, and whitewater exploits for, for a long time. And, but incredibly, we've never met, you know, he was winning nationals and he set the, you know, the North American record, which, which held for over 10 years, you know, the, the ozone team went down and beat it the summer down in Texas. But, you know, he was, he, he did that back in a regular, you know, seat harness and, on old gear and I think 2001 or 2002 or something. And it held for over a decade, you know? So, I mean, the guy has been prominent in paragliding for, for a long time. I mean, I didn't even learn how to paraglide until 2006. So a lot of his big exploits had already been done, you know, before I even learned how to, how to fly. So yeah, our, our, our Pat, you know, he hasn't been, you know, he hasn't been doing comps the last few years. And, and like I said, since his friend got injured, um, he hadn't been flying that much, but he did, he got really back into it heavy this season, uh, before, you know, before he and I ever spoke about the trip, he was doing some really cool baby lines at home and was really kind of getting his passion for flying back. I don't know if it was ever gone, but he was certainly flying a lot this summer when we first spoke and, uh, it was really a treat and very special for me to do anything with Will Gadd. I mean, he's kind of been one of my heroes for a long time. And so, yeah, that was, that was pretty exciting. In some ways, kind of scary because of course I was like, Oh my God, man, I hope I've got the skills to hang with this guy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, but we didn't, we had never met. We, we talked on the phone a couple of times before the trip very briefly. Actually, we didn't cover much and in, in quite a few emails just about logistics and gear and, and, uh, working with the film crew, you know, these guys, uh, with real water productions who are awesome, but they had never shot paragliding. So, you know, when you start bringing in helicopters to film and all that kind of thing, we, we had a pretty scary incident when we were filming 500 miles to nowhere with the helicopter on the very last day. We just brought in a heli for one hour to film some of that, uh, some of that shoot at uh, at this place called hurricane ridge and and uh had a really scary moment with the helicopter so i was pretty nervous about working with helis and will had worked with them a lot and so it was just nice to have his filming experience and be able to he kind of ran that whole end of the show and uh but yeah we'd never met until literally the day before i pulled up at his house in canmore and and spent the night at his place and we you know we were up all night dealing with like delormes and getting those you know the tracking devices all set up and all those kind of last minute things that you hadn't been able to cover so but yeah that was we literally met the day before we we did it which is which is quite funny when you think about like taking on a project of this scope with somebody that you've never met I don't, you know, there's, there was certainly, that's certainly a recipe for, for disaster, but, um, it actually ended up working really well. Um, you know, I, 
I've been a captain. I, I ran a, a series of kite surfing expeditions around the world. And you know, I, I guess you'd call me like a trip leader or something in this kind of phraseology. But um, I, I'm real used to pl- kind of planning and, and leading expeditions of, of this kind of scope. It was really cool, actually, to kind of take the back seat on this one and let Will run things because it was I, I learned something as we kind of went along like, you know, he he and I often didn't agree in a lot of different ways, like whether that be the line or what we should try to attempt that day. And he called me a pathological optimist. You know, like he, I, I just thought that everything could always work. And, you know, he's been in the game so long that he has a much more realistic view of, of, of everything, I think. And so, like, we, we often didn't agree, but in the retrospect, he was always right. And so and I learned that very early on. And so when it just came to decisions, it, I don't think that he would have ever capitulated anyway. <laughs> That's just not his style. <laughs> like he, it's it, it, not, not like it's Will Gadsware the highway, not at all. I mean, he's, he's super kind and humble and, you know, but he just, he's done it so long that, and he knows his way works. And, uh, and, and I realized that very early on and it was just, that was just a much easier way to do it. And, and like I said, he, he was always right. So why, why mess with that? And so it was actually, and it was actually really nice. It was really, it was really good for me to be able to just kind of be like, yep. Okay. Let's do that. That sounds good. Cause there's a lot of pressure, you know, when you have, when you have that, when, you know, we had this budget from Red Bull and, and, uh, this, you know, huge film crew and there's a lot of pressure to, complete it in success you know but there's also just you're just trying to survive you know so you're trying to balance you know just being safe and making good decisions and also making a good film and and uh he'd done that so much that it was really nice to kind of just follow in his footsteps so tell me about the trip then tell me what happened (laughs) um Oh, it was epic. I, I, I know you're going to want more than that, but uh, yeah, it was just, um, you know, I've been, I've been really fortunate, Judith, to have done some, some pretty amazing things with my life. You know, I spent 13 years sailing around the world and did a couple circumnavigations and, you know, I've, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what I expected of this trip. I know I was really excited and, you know, I was, I've been looking at this line for a long time and, you know, the possibility of flying down through a, a, an area this remote that I had never seen before was, was really exciting. But I guess I, I underestimated all of it, um, before going into it. And so when we came, we got kind of spit out, if you will, the other end and, and actually pulled it off because it was a lot of work and it was, and we had a lot of scary moments. Um, I, I can look back and, and honestly say it was the best thing I've ever done with my time. It was, it was really extraordinary. Um, I believe you've also said that it's the most dangerous thing you've ever done. Yeah, definitely. And for somebody like you, who's basically a professional adventurer, that's quite a, that says a lot about that trip. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, yeah. I mean, there were definitely some terrifying moments. I think for both of us, you know, I think that there were some days where, where it was pretty gripping and we handled it really well. And, and in some ways we got lucky, you know, like after a particularly bad couple of days, actually one day when I, when I really truly properly crashed when I'd never crashed a paraglider before and, and came away pretty lucky on, on that one. You know, I it, but it really set me back it, mentally. It just, I just thought, holy shit! You know, like, do I have the, 
Man, the skill that was, was pretty early on in the trip. I think it was like day four and, uh, we got separated for the night and, you know, I, I got kind of stuck down in this hole. I couldn't dig out of. Will had dug out, waited as long as he could. And it was a really windy day and he had to push on. And then I ended up kind of, cra- I mean, yeah, okay. He'd call it, he'd call it just a sketchy landing, but I'd call it a crash. And, uh, and spent the night in, in different places. And then I, I caught up to him the next day and to get back to him that next day, it was also a, a really overdeveloped day, incredibly windy. Again, one of these days where you really shouldn't be flying, but mentally I just needed to be back with my partner. I just, I didn't, I, I really wanted to just, I don't know, have somebody to talk about with and, you know, and just analyze this trip and where we were. And cause at that point we had a long way to go. And, uh, yeah, it was a real, it was a real, pardon my French, it was a real head fuck there for a while. And, uh, and I just, and, and it was, yeah, it spooked me out. And I hadn't been really spooked, uh, flying in, in that way, I guess. I mean, we've all, we all have our moments paralyzing for sure. And I've, I've certainly had mine, but yeah, it kind of, it definitely kind of set me back and, and it, and it spooked me out a little bit. And then fortuitously, we had four days where we couldn't move. We, the weather just was horrible for four days and we got kind of pinned down in this really beautiful alpine meadow where we'd both top landed. And in retrospect, you know, we were really antsy to get going. We, we knew we had only a limited number of days and, and, uh, you know, we, we wanted to keep flying, of course, but, you know, we, we actually, in retrospect, we both really needed that time. We really needed that rest of just doing nothing and kind of getting our, our act back together. And, uh, and he was kind of in the same place, you know, it was, it was really good to kind of recognize that. So in some ways, the bad conditions, it, it, in some, in some instances, they actually worked in our favor. We didn't realize it at the time, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, the, you know, paragliding is, of course, mental. I mean, th- this trip certainly had its physical moments, you know, like a couple times landing low and getting back up to the Alpine to launch was, was quite a feat in this kind of terrain. But, um, but really this trip was, was a lot more mental. And, uh, I guess, I guess paragliding always is. Yeah, it was intense on a lot of levels, super intense. I mean, he and I worked really well together and, had we not, I don't know that we would have pulled it off. You know, they, like like one of the things that I thought was just incredible, which I really have trouble with, I think everybody does, was that we were able to stay together in the air. And especially in those kind of conditions. I mean, we, we made a real conscious decision. You know, some of the other bivy trips that I've done with with other people in the past, you know, I, I think because we didn't have to stay together on those, then you, you end up, you don't. But in this case, we just made this really conscious decision like, hey, let's not play best ball here. Let's not get separated. Let's not, you know, there's always going to be a slower guy on a given day and let's just stay together no matter what. And just, we just decided that was necessary for safety on this one. And um, so maybe that was part of it, but I think the other part of it was just that we, we really did fly well together. And so that was kind of this, you know, this imaginary or mental crutch that we both had the whole time was that we were, well, we might, we, I, I must not be that crazy. That 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 dude's in the air too. You know, we we just had that thing going the whole time. Like, I, you know, it was, it was it would have been really terrifying to do alone. I, I I don't know that I'd ever go back and and fly that that line again. I think it's a pretty serious undertaking. Um, you know, it it's just it, I can't even describe how beautiful it was. You know, you're basically flying down the backside of some of the most famous national parks in the world, um, you know, Jasper and Yo-Yo and Banff and just st- 
stunning, but also really severe and really, you know, we were flying, uh, you know, when you, when you learn how to paraglide, it, the first thing you learn is you never fly over terrain where there isn't a place to land, right? I mean, that's just kind of like one of the unwritten rules. Um, you know, we were flying hours without a place to land. Like, and I'm not talking like, you know, like without a place to land nowhere you, you've got a tree you've got like 200 foot trees you know he was talking about turning himself into human velcro if he went into something like that um or a lake you know so i mean okay so you could land in a tree or you could land in a lake but but like a proper place to land and not get hurt or drown there was there was you know you'd be hours and that's that's pretty intense that's a pretty you know where you're just making your it's like, like a series of must make moves or you don't have a place to put it down is it, it kind of wears on you well i was going to say if you had an accident as well that must have really drummed home how remote you actually were and that if you'd actually been injured consequences could have been disastrous yes although you know um I mean, the reality is, is we had a film crew with us. So, you know, I mean, we were, of course, both flying with, with, with spot trackers and, you know, we both had insurance up to the gills and, you know, we were, we were covered. I mean, we, we would have had a proper rescue uh, team come out like they have in BC. You know, luckily, like I said, we, we were flying on the backside of all these national parks and there are a lot of people out there tromping in the woods, not the, on the side of the mountains that we were on, but there are people around, you know, hikers and stuff that get injured. And so, you know, the, but the reality was, is we had an A-star helicopter following us around filming us. And so we weren't allowed to use them for support, of course, but in the, in the case of an emergency, of course, we had, you know, we had people on site. So it would have been a very bad place to have an accident, but also the other, the, the, the flip positive side of having a film crew is that, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't really all alone. Okay, but in terms of how remote it was, I mean, how was it for, say, like mobile phone signals so that you could check out the weather? And I mean, was no. that a problem? The, for the most part, no. In some places, you know, like the second half, the second, the last third of the trip, um, you know, kind of from Golden down to the border, we had intermittent areas where where we had pretty good cell coverage and we could get updates for the whole the whole northern section of the trip. Northern half of the trip, there was no cell coverage at all, um, which actually, that was really good. I got to put a plug in for Delorme here. That was really, I'd never used those devices. I'd always just use Spot, um, which you can't really text with. And with the Delormes, what we were doing is, you know, each night when we would land, we could use those to send out a text message. It's kind of like a Twitter, you know, like 140 characters or something. And we had a, a, a buddy of Will's a guy named Stuart Midwinter that lives in Calgary who's really dialed into the weather and so we would text him like hey here's our Latin long um, what do you see tomorrow in the next couple of days what do you see for an outlook and he would check XC skies and use all his his resources at his end and then he'd give us a little quick text back so we actually were we were getting weather updates but just via that way we, the, most of this whole area didn't have any cell coverage at all. How did you deal with other dangers on the trip? Because, I mean, you were in bear country. 
big yeah. style, presumably even more so than you are at home in Idaho. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, this is definitely big grizz country. Um, we saw, we didn't actually see any bears. Incredibly, we both expected to see a, a lot of bears. Um, we saw a lot of scat and stuff, you know, a lot of signs of bears, but we didn't actually see any. What we figured was it was, you know, August, they're probably down low eating berries and we were really high up in the alpine the whole time. So we didn't actually have to worry about you know, the wildlife or other dangers that much. We had a couple nights where we were down on Kinnabasket Lake down low and there was a lot of signs of bears and we were being pretty careful, but it was actually really funny. Uh, the very first day we were hiking up to launch in McBride. So from, from the, the town at the start, and I noticed that, you know, he had his bear spray on the outside of his pack and mine was put away in this little zipper. And that was the first sign. I'm like, oh, God, you idiot. And I'm like, yeah, of course. A bear's, you know, if a bear comes, like, hey, hold on a sec, bear. You mind if I get my bear spray out here? <laughs> and, uh, and so we were, we were laughing about that. And, and, uh, and, you know, he turns to me and he goes, you know, the difference between a black bear and a brown bear, right? And I started rattling all these, well, yeah, you know, the, the ears and the nose and, you know, brown bears typically bigger and different color hair you know and all this stuff and he kind of he's kind of listening and i see this little smile on his face and he goes yeah yeah mate that that none of those things make any difference how you know a black bear is when you run up a tree a black bear will climb up the tree and kill you and if you run up a tree and it's a grizzly the grizzly will just knock the tree over and kill you <laughs> that's like <laughs> no <the> difference <laughs> well, okay there you go chalk it up for experience uh, so yeah so we had a laugh about about bears but yeah actually you know we didn't have any other incidences that were scary you know other than the signs and that kind of thing and you know i actually would have enjoyed seeing a little bit more to be honest but we you know we had the the scenery i it's hard to describe you'll see it all in the movie i've seen some of the footage it is just absurd really wild terrain that we were flying over so stunning how did you manage for food and water then that was actually really cool. In, in the past, all the other baby trips I've done, the water's really been our Achilles heel. And on this trip, I actually only used my dromedary a couple times. There's so much ice and snow through the whole route. We never really had to worry about water. There were plenty of springs. And so typically we were just flying with the water we'd use for the day. And then wherever we landed, we always top landed except I think twice. Uh, we were always, we stayed up high in the Alpine. We were lucky enough to land in places where you know there was water pretty easily accessible you know a couple times we had to get huge chunks of snow and and melt and do it that way but for the most part water wasn't really an issue it wasn't really a worry so we weren't having to carry as much as we typically do which was great food we had everything set up in advance where we had you know, four days at a time packed into Ziplocs. And that was with, we had a, a kind of a ground crew. We had a, gu a guy driving my truck. And, and so he had all this stuff lined up like one, two, three, four. And we both had, I think, 20 something days of food kind of all ready to go. And we were carrying five days at a time. So whenever we could link back up with the truck, whether that was, you know, I think day four, we landed right on the lake in Kinnabasket. We weren't able to get out. We kind of got shaded out that day and 
flew and flew and flew and we were never able to get high again and we landed right on the shore of the lake which was actually super dicey because there's no roads at all there was this old overgrown logging road that looked really good from the air but once we got close to it it was all overgrown with alder and stuff and but luckily we were able to find this little tiny patch right next to the lake and we were able to hook back up with the truck so like that day for example we we got another five days of food and then carried on so yeah, basically it was it was bump up and top up whenever we could. Presumably without that support, you wouldn't have been able to do it, though. Or... Yeah, it would have been hard. I mean, I think, you know, if you could really pick the days, you know, between, like I said, you know, between McBride and, say, Golden, you know, what is that, maybe 400K, maybe, no, not even that, maybe 350K, you know, so if you could just post up in McBride and do that section of the route when you knew the weather was going to be pretty good and carry five days of food, then bang, you're in golden. And that was actually the original plan was that we were, we were only, you know, we, we discussed doing food drops before the whole thing, but that was, we put that out because then you're really, you're strapped into doing, you know, to landing in a particular place to get your food. And if it's on a good day, you know, you don't want to be doing that. You don't want to land and search around for your food and keep going or get your food. You want to just fly. You want to stay in the air. So, so we scrapped that idea and then we talked about the truck, um, you know, doing it that way. And, you know, is that cheating? Is that okay? And then, you know, because originally we were just going to carry what we could and reprovision in the towns, you know, and there's, they're not many and there's none between Valmont and Golden. That that section of it was the, the by far the most remote and there's nothing in there. There's there's no trails, there's no roads, there's no of course no stores, there's there's no people. We didn't see anybody in there. And so, you know, for sections like that, you know, load up before and then get through and then load up again. And so we could have done it that way too and we decided not to do it that way because because we had the film crew. I mean that's just the that's the reality of the whole thing is if we lost a day, which is that's what we would do to provisioning, you know, to walking out, getting the food, getting back in, getting back up into the alpine, which in this part of the world is amazing, you know, the, the, you're talking a huge you know, many, many hours, not like two hours to get up. This is not like the Alps, you know, where everything's really easy access and nice trails and green lawns and stuff. So we basically, that was just going to throw the whole budget and the whole time frame and the thing way off. So we had, you know, we had two major commitments here. One was to do it in style and, and to do it ethically. And the other was to make a film. You know, we had, we had an obligation to Red Bull and to Real Water Productions that, you know, they just couldn't afford for us to be walking for a full day to get food and blowing a, a potential day of flying. We, we just couldn't do it that way. So, so like in everything, we had to make some compromises and we felt like that was one that was, was okay. Well, I did a podcast with um, Steve Nash and Dean Crosby, who did the Pyrenees Unsupported from Coast to Coast, mm -hmm. and they had so many problems trying to keep themselves provisioned. Yeah, the Alps is a lot more populated than the Pyrenees. They really suffered from the the cri you know the economic crisis that we've got because so many restaurants and bars had actually just closed down, oh, wow. or they didn't open during the week. Just the logistics, and when you're burning five to six thousand calories a day and to try and get that back into your body when you know that walking down to get that food and walking back up you're going to burn the calories that you're going to be able to yeah. to take with you so yeah. i mean for them it was it was bad enough in a in a populated area 
Right. Yeah. Like the Pyrenees in comparison to the place where you were, which, you know. Yeah. And that was, you know, like, again, I have to give the credit to these, a lot of these decisions to Will. You know, it was, you know, when we, when you look at it on paper, things are a lot different than the reality. And when we got in there and realized, you know, it's just a lot different looking at something on Google Earth and actually then being there. And so, you know, a lot of the planning and a lot of the quote unquote ethics or the, or the, the plan just went right out the window when we got in there. And the thing that we had, basically we had the one rule. We couldn't make forward progress unless we were in the air and we were hell bent on that. And we were just like, okay, that's our ethic. That's the only thing we have to live by. Everything else is just background noise. And that's, that's, you know, that's the ethic we chose. And I'm sure there will be people that will criticize that. But I, I just think that that's for us. That's what made sense when you're burning that kind of money on filming and and having that production, you know, obviously you have responsibility to that side of things as well. And, and the reality was myself, I couldn't go do a project like that if we didn't have the filming component, you know, it's, it's quite expensive to disappear for 35 days and go do a trip like this. And so I was really grateful and, and thankful to, for them to real water and Red Bull for making it happen. And so at the, and at the same time, then it could, I have an obligation to them to pull it off in style. And for everybody, that meant getting to the border. Success was defined not flying this amazing line and disappearing off into the horizon and flying to like, you know, we, we, we talked a lot about, you know, the big crux of this whole expedition was when we got down to like Invermere, you know, so we were only at that point 150 or 160 K from the border and we could see all this horrible weather coming. And Will and I just kept saying, listen, you guys, like, for from the audience perspective or from our perspective like what we've learned on this trip is that you know paragliding is the ultimate freedom and why do we have to get to this border it's just a, it's just a stupid line on a map you know it just doesn't mean anything like it's just so much more meaningful for us to let's just dial up into the sky and fly where the wind blows us and, and land out in, you know, somewhere in Banff or land out, you know, let's fly towards Calgary and let's end the movie. You know, like, why do we have to spend all this money and all this time and banging our heads against the wall trying to get to the border? Because at that point, we had a ton of southerly wind and we were going out and flying in these horrendous conditions trying to get somewhere that you would never attempt if there wasn't a film being made about it and and it just didn't to will and i it didn't make sense and so it ended up you know we ended up capitulating and you say okay well that's you know that the guys in, in austria were saying no like that's what we've set up that's what we would have to do like that's success you got to get to the border you know and so just step away from it come back you you've got to get to the border and to us that made no sense and then when we came back to the project and actually did it and actually flew to the border it was so rewarding and I'm so happy that they, in a sense, kind of forced us to do it because it was, it actually did end up having a lot of meaning. You know, like the whole Alan Watts thing, you know, is it about the journey or the end? And it is about, it's absolutely about the journey, but it was, um, it ended up being really, it was a good thing to fight for. And it did actually mean a lot, not actually getting to the border, but just completing it in style and completing that whole you know, no forward progress unless we're in the air. 
You said earlier that you think people might criticise you. I, I don't really think they will because you set yourself parameters and you stuck to them. It's not like, you know, halfway through you got in your truck and drove 100 miles and then started off again. You know, you, this business about no forward progress without flying is exactly what you did. Yeah, so, no, absolutely. You know, and like you said right at the beginning, vol bivouac is so many things to so many different people. You know, you, you, it wasn't a competition about who does the vol bivouacking best. You know, you, you say, and I, I actually agree. I think it's really good that you achieved the goal that you set yourself. I mean, it would have been a fantastic adventure either way, but to to actually make it across that point that you'd set yourself, I think, does add something to it. Yeah, it did. Uh, I mean, and I, I think I think it was just because it it proved so hard. You know, we were fighting a lot of different things at that point. The weather, the forest fires, stability, getting late in the year. There was a lot of things, <laughs> snow <laughs> at the end. But yeah, it was to to pull it off actually was really rewarding and and I was and I was super happy that we actually stayed on course there and and did it. And like I said there there are a lot of extraneous pressures when you when you throw in the film aspect of things, but you know like Will said it, it's pretty cool to have documented that. You know, it, it's it's going to be a lot more special in 20 years to be able to go back to that film. You know, when I can't do this kind of stuff anymore, and go, yeah, look what I used to do. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, yeah, so it's it's quite special, I think, to have that kind of on record. Well, how special was it to be nominated for the Adventure of the Year Award from National Geographic? Oh, my God. Well, if this wasn't an audio podcast and I actually had video when I found that out, that would I think we'd get a lot more listeners. You should have seen me dancing around like a peacock over here. It was, um, you know, it, it's quite funny. I think this is the 10th anniversary of, of that, that National Geographic's been doing this, you know, Adventures of the Year thing. And, and it's something I've watched really closely every year and I've completely pined for it i just thought god how do those people get that thing you know because all those years i was sailing around the world and you know doing some pretty fun things but um yeah it was it was something i've, I've definitely been in in awe of for for a long time anyway and so when i got the email and they they uh they told me that i was kind of you know that we were on the roster to get picked i just couldn't believe it and uh yeah there was there was a lot of quite hysterical dancing going on over here when I when I found out um yeah it's a, it's it's truly an honor it was it was kind of neat at the Banff Film Festival they announced that it was quite an honor to be just just associated and and uh put in the same room of people that I've been you know real inspired by for for a long time so yeah it, it was it's it's very special it, it's very special no and well very well deserved thank you no thanks very much Many thanks to Gavin. You can get more info on their trip and listen to other paragliding-related podcasts at www.theparaglider.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our podcasts, webcasts and articles on The Paraglider, please consider making a donation to support us with our costs for hosting and also to support us in making great new resources. We've got lots of ideas for new podcasts, webcasts and articles and we'd be happy to produce them, but we need your support. You can find the donate button on any of the podcast pages on theparaglider.com as well as on the main index page. Thank you.